You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Our scripture lesson is from the Gospel of Mark the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. When the, the shepherds ran off and told it in the city in the, and in the country, then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sharon. I've just finished reading a very interesting book. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Professor Alan Kreider. Professor Kreider is a specialist in early church history. And the book's subtitle is interesting. It tells, tells a lot. The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Professor Kreider shows the early church, the church in the first 200 years, say from A.D. 100 to A.D. 200, 250, the early church didn't grow by evangelizing. They didn't go out looking for converts. Paul, of course, did, but this is after Paul. 
after Paul's been executed. No, the church grew and grew a lot, but it didn't use the evangelical approach. It didn't go out preaching. There was no organized effort to grow the church. Those who wanted to join the church, in matter of fact, had high hurdles. They had to go through several different things to become a Christian. First, they had to demonstrate to a Christian that they wanted very much to change their lives, how they acted, how they behaved. They had to change, show they would change their lifestyle. The Roman lifestyle, early years, it's the Christian lifestyle. Then they had to get a Christian to sponsor them, to bring them to the bishop at the time, and to convince the bishop that they were earnest in trying to change their lives. They would then spend a year or more as what they called a catechist, as someone who was learning about the faith and learning to live the faith. Learning to change what Professor Kreider calls their habitus, their habits of living. And this was a Christianity, it turns out, that was grounded on patience, a patience of growth. The Roman way was not the Christian way. The Roman world was exceedingly violent. It was a world of slavery, of bloodshed, of um, each person looking out for themselves. As a matter of fact, one, one of the uh, writings we have from the Romans at the time, they kept extensive reports from their government. The writings included totally being totally mystified by a Christian's approach to being forgiving for showing mercy to someone who was down. This was not the Roman way. Rather, that was a weakened way. That was not the way of, of manhood. That was not the way of a Roman citizen. It was the way of a slave. For someone to become a Christian, to move from pagan to Christian, to change their lives, meant to totally turn their back on that Roman way, a way they'd been raised for a lifetime. So the Christians were patient. Patience, as a matter of fact, was their chief virtue. And it was the patience that was taught by Jesus Christ. For the early Christians, their patience drew from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Blesseds. Patience meant many things. It was rooted in God's character. God's character to be patient over time, over the years it took to free and enslaved people, bring them through a desert, bring them to temples, bring finally the Savior, Jesus Christ. The heart of patience was rooted in the incarnation of Jesus himself and his patient lifestyle. Just think for a moment how many times he had to ask the disciples, don't you get it? Patience in those early days, as Christians saw them, was not something human control, but was rather grounded on the trust in God. Trusting God to have a plan, it's God's plan and not man's. And they cannot be manipulated by man. Patience for the early Christians was not in a hurry, but in time. 
And patience was unconventional, at least in the Roman world, because it reconfigured behavior that ran counter to that Roman society, particularly behaviors in wealth and power and sex. Behaviors in the Roman world were so much different than what Christianity showed. And patience is not violent. It didn't force anyone to become a Christian, not in those early days. Patience rather recognized freedom, not compulsion. And patience, as they practiced it, was always hopeful to trust in God's future, not theirs. So here's what happened. The Christians practiced this patient in their lives. And they did it with their pagan neighbors, their pagan business associates, their pagan rulers, and their pagan subjects and peers. And the people they were with noticed that. And some were drawn to this strange behavior, drawn to ask. And, and some who were asked were willing to explore and maybe change some very fundamental lifestyles. They were willing to stop going to the games. I think most of you might know, certainly should know, about the Roman games, you know, the gladiators, the lions used to execute criminals, the blood and the gore. These were spectacular sports, very popular. Think Monday night football. Imagine giving up whatever favorite sport you might want to look at or watch. They were also into cutthroat business practices. This was accepted. Imagine giving that up and taking the financial hits that would come. Romans, Romans did not break bread with social inferiors. So for us, imagine spending the night in a shelter, not in your good clothes, but dressed down, be on the streets for a little bit, and then go to that shelter and try to get in. And those who took this path, when they could show that they had really changed, that they could live that life, that they changed their habits, then they were admitted to the church. You know, and that happened no matter how many prayers they memorized, no matter how many different um, uh, teachers they may have had of Scripture, which was all going on at the same time. No, they had to show that they had changed their lifestyle that this Christian life had been ingrained in them. And then they were admitted. This took patience, and it took the Christians to work slowly by example, not by preaching or exhorting or proselytizing. Theirs was a lived faith. And Christianity grew from a community of patience to a culture of patience and to take over the world. I thought of this book when I was looking at today's scripture reading. And this is a strange story. And for me, the strangest part was what the people did when they came back to check on Jesus and to check on the swineherd story and to check on their homegrown demonic. The people came to see what it was that happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind the very man who had the legion in him. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. 
And then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. They were afraid, and they sent Jesus away. This isn't the way other people acted. When Jesus healed people, drove out demons, gave sight to the blind, that acted to bring people to him, throng him. He several stories of him trying to escape. They witnessing a healing would demand more healings, but not this crowd. The only other one I could find that were acting like this was the folks in Jesus' hometown. And that's a story that Mark tells us in his next chapter. But this is nothing like Jesus' hometown. For openers, these are pagans. This story takes place in a part of the world called the Decapolis, the place of ten cities, what's now Syria, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was an area settled by Rome, um, uh, for Romans, and, and before that, the Greek influence. Ten cities were pagan cities. They weren't Jewish. As a matter of fact, witness the swine herds and all those pigs running around. This is not a Jewish community, not a Jewish area. Jesus has come to a strange area and performed a miracle. And what happened next is even stranger. As he was getting into the boat, that is, being invited to leave by the pagans, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to claim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So here's one, too, that wants to follow Jesus. Just as, remember, the wealthy young man or those uh, in the other stories, Jesus rebuffed. Jesus rebuffs this man, too. But he gives the man a mission. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. He's telling this man to preach to the pagans. And what happened then? Well, we won't know that really until a couple chapters down the road in Mark. And that's chapter 8 where Mark tells us of Jesus feeding the 4,000. That story of the feeding of the 4,000 follows the feeding of the 5,000. That story of the feeding of the 4,000 takes place in the Decapolis. It takes place in the pagan territory. And Mark tells us, when he tells us that story, in those days when there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, what happened? The people in that place came to Jesus. How was it now that in a pagan territory we now have a great crowd following Jesus? My reading is that our demoniac has done some good preaching, telling people far and wide what Jesus did for him. But importantly, showing by his presence how he had been changed. This is a personal testimony. It's backed by a little example. When we first saw that demonic, he was naked. He was living in the tombs 
totally apart from his world, a tortured being, perhaps not even really recognizable as anything but partly human. And now he could bear witness to having been changed and changed completely. Why were they afraid? Beginning. Why were they afraid? I would suggest that they were afraid because there's very normal world that had this outcast living on the periphery of their world. They knew it. They could use that as their scapegoat. They could know that they were safe. The demonic was out there. And that world had been changed. What they had taken for granted had been taken from them. The man was normal. And when they saw that this was a human being, they were stuck. They had to take him back, even though there was a memory and a change. How do you deal with someone who's changing? It's not easy. How to deal with someone who be changeable even day that you don't know what to expect? It's very hard. It's very difficult. Particularly when our expectations of those people wind up being so wrong. Whether we expect them to be really good and they turn out to be really bad. But also, as we saw here, maybe when we expect them to act very badly and we're prepared to, to deal with that, we find out that they're really good. Living today is a very difficult time. And it's easy for us to be angry today and to have expectations about people today. It's very easy to be angry, angry at the political makeup of our country, angry at a power structure that instills fear, be angry at racism and sexism and xenophobia, to be angry at those who ignore science. It's very easy today to be angry with a society of greed and, and actually think just how much that's crazy. It's also very easy to be angry in today's world and think those who believe in getting for themselves are crazy. It's easy to be angry with leaders for the decisions they make or they fail to make to be angry with our fellow citizens for the choices they have made. And those can be choices, either political choices that we've just seen, personal choices. And that anger is there no matter how you may have wanted things to turn out. Whether you wanted our recent elections to turn out one way or another whether you wanted that particular person to turn out one way or another. And that anger is based here. Now, don't take my word for that. I want you to take a few moments sometime during the week and look to your own heart. If you're angry, any of us are. Look into your own heart and see what is it you might be afraid of that's generating that anger. We are living now in fear and anxiety and sorrow. And here's where today's scripture and our early history 
come together. The people were afraid and sent Jesus away because they saw their comfortable lives being changed, their assumptions being taken from them. And I don't think they knew how to react to it. And then they had someone living among them who showed them what change can be when it comes to meeting Jesus Christ. And that too was scary. And it can be scary for us as well. This, this change is what comes from patience. A patient based on trusting in God's time and in God's way and in God's plan. Things happen. Whether we plan them or not, whether we want them or not, they happen. Can we trust in God's plan? In a sense, at this time, we are all in danger of becoming demonics. We aren't already. Howling and wanting to howl in anger frustration, desperately working to break our chains, whatever they may be, whether it's a chain of addiction or a chain of, of uh, uh, wanting a better world and being not powerful enough to make it, a, a chain of, of habits, a chain of feeling certain ways, of living in a depression that wants us to believe we're living in the graveyards of what we once loved. Yeah, we're in danger of those feelings. Or maybe we're in danger of becoming like those townspeople who see their life changing in front of their eyes, who no longer have a handy scapegoat, who now see their normal world changing. Don't we know or understand why this, of course, this sense of change and fear is a different type of demonic possession. God, through Jesus, can drive our demons of fear and anxiety and sorrow away. Here and now is where we can draw strength from those who went before us. Here and now, we can strength from the patience of those early Christians who lived in a world totally alien from everything they believed in, everything everything they did in their lives and they continued to live their life. And yet, did they pay for that? Some were swindled. Some were beaten up. Some lost friendships. Some saw their families split apart when one member of the family began acting and being a Christian and the others were stuck in Rome. Also, those who followed them had to become one with them. And in this way, they began to convert a terrible, fearful world. They did it by patience, not by force, not by anger, not by fear, but by patience. And here's where we can go, patience for our own exorcisms. The key, and the early ones knew this, was practice. And we know what to do. And that's why we come to worship to hear the Scriptures. We're told. James in his epistle tells us what practice to begin that I believe I'm trying to do now in this time. In this day. This is James writing to us. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another, speak evil against the law and judge the law. But judge the law. You're not doing the law, 
but a judge. There's one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? Who indeed? Good question. So let's start there. Not with forgiveness, but with patience with ourselves and with our neighbors, working not to speak in any angry judgment, working not to judge our neighbor, however they may be acting or voting or doing or thinking. Working not to judge our neighbor. If we start there, we can build up into practicing the patience to recognize that God does have a plan one that humans cannot defeat or change. This isn't fatalism. This isn't shrugging our shoulders and saying, oh, God wills it, and then turning our back on uh, some disaster. Rather, it is acknowledging that where we are and what we do can be part of God's plan. That no matter what style of living, uh, no matter how we do it, it is a matter of living the life Jesus taught us to live. That's all the earliest Christians did. And they change the world. So if we don't like what's going on in our world, we can change it by calling upon God and his teachings and following them. And that sounds like a plan. I want to end with a little prayer that I found. It's by Reverend Nadia Boltz-Weber. And it's her prayer for a Monday. Please pray with me. God, weak the doozy. If anxiety sound, it would be deafening right now. Open my ears to the sound I need most, the wild geese overhead, Aretha Franklin's amazing grace, the sound of my friend on the other end of the phone, the sugar laughed children who need us to dial down the doom. If fear could be seen, it would be obscuring everything else. Open my eyes to the sights that I need most. My puppy underfoot with a toy in her mouth. The brightening of my neighbor's eyes under the mask when I pass them in the stairwell. That sidewalk covered in these fallen leaves like nature's confetti. If bitterness would overcome me, open my mouth to the sweetness I need. Words of kindness. Deep, unhurried kisses and absolute as much Ben and Jerry's as I deem necessary. Help me remember that you are in the other side of Tuesday, no matter what. Amen.